When are people going to see that nothing ain't never going to change unless somebody finally makes up his mind to stand up and fight? Damn. Netrich Radio presents Hopping Mad with Will McLeod and Arliss Bunny. Now, here's Will and Arliss. Welcome to Hopping Mad. I'm Will McLeod. And I'm Arliss Bunny, and I am back from the most amazing experience. I went to the first international conference on modern monetary theory in Kansas City from the 21st to the 24th of September, and it was... It was absolutely incredible. I was texting, you know, with Will and saying, you have got to come next year. It's the most amazing thing because it really, really was. It wasn't just a bunch of economists, which is what you would expect. It was economists and activists and media people and all kinds of people with an interest in economics. So it, it in no way was the conference I was expecting. It was much more... Um, energized and uh, useful, frankly, practical and useful. And I I really was just blown away by it. When they talked about international at this conference, they weren't even just talking about, you know, I'm thinking, okay, there are going to be a couple of guys there from the UK and a couple of people there from Australia. No, it, there. I went to presentations um, from a, a professor who was uh, an Iranian professor who was talking about the what's going on with the economy of Iran? I was talking. I went to a really incredible panel on developing nations and how MMT can work in developing nations, and listened to a fabulous paper on Tunisia. I also heard presentations on Argentina, Australia, Germany, the Netherlands, Mexico, China. It was really, really just. Inspiring, I guess, is the best word to use. And there were many presenters who were speaking about generalized topics who use their work in other countries to illustrate their points. Because interestingly, other countries don't give MMT as much pushback as, of course, the U.S. does. Aspects of MMT I hadn't considered. That that was the other thing. And I was telling this to Will. But there were aspects of MMT that I just had not really connected the dots on. So I went to panels on... Um, job guarantee design in human rights, modern money, courts, and civil rights against legal predation, which I thought was really a fascinating panel. Um, modern money, payment systems, and digital rights, and um, MMT and ecological sustainability. Those were all um, really well thought out panels in terms of who was on the panel, the, the presentations that were given, absolutely fascinating. I got interviews while I was there with Zach Carter of Huffington Post. You heard that last week of Pavlena Ch- uh, Chernova, and you're going to hear that interview today. She's one of the leading lights of MMT, and I'm telling you, she gave me an amazing interview. Brad Voracek of the Minsky's, and Brad, um, the Minsky's is a website, and he is a young economist, and I really wanted to hear from the millennials who were there. And Brad just gave me a great, a really great interview and um, represented really well. Upcoming, I'll have interviews with Dr. Kelton, with Dr. Stephanie Kelton, Dr. Fadil Kaboob, J.D. Alt about his new book, Dr. Reynold Nasiba, um, Dr. Lenwood Taubi. Tawheed, who is an institutional economist, a couple of congressional candidates, an activist or two. All of this flows out of the MMT conference. So as you stick with us in future weeks, you'll you'll continue to hear from just these amazing people I met. It was really an incredible opportunity. I was going to wait until next week to talk about this, but the situation in Catalonia today as we're recording on Saturday is very concerning to me. Now, as you are listening to this, the uh, referendum in Catalonia will already have been conducted, but I wanted to talk about what happened in the lead up to that referendum, because that's what we know about, and just how disgusted I am with the Spanish government. Catalonia has had an independence movement forever, and had an independence movement under the time of Franco, when things like the speaking of the Catalan language was banned in in various public places and, and in official settings. Catalonia uh, in, I think it was 75, when Franco stopped being, you know, the, the dictator of Spain, 
1975 became one of 17 autonomous regions of Spain. Uh, unlike other autonomous regions, though, like the Basque country, they are not fully financially independent. And that's because Catalonia was the nexus of the Industrial Revolution of Spain. It is a fifth of Spain's economy. Uh, it is uh, 20% of, of foreign investment in Spain happens in Catalonia. They have a big chunk of new industry. They have a huge chunk of the pharmaceutical industry because of Barcelona. They have a massive part of the tourist industry. And with the complete mismanagement in Madrid and austerity and the ascendancy of the right-wing People's Party, headed by Rajoy, a lot of people in Catalonia are done with Spain. They don't like how their wealth is being mismanaged. They don't like austerity. They tend to be far more left-wing. Uh, the People's Party uh, of Rajoy has, has almost no representation in Catalonia whatsoever. And 70% of the people in Catalonia want a legal referendum, according to polling, while uh, a slim, it's split about 50-50 for and against, uh, according to polling, the, the idea of Catalonian independence. And the Spanish government has done everything they can to delegitimize the referendum that's happening or that, that will have happened on Sunday. They uh, have made, they have blocked the referendum. The referendum is not legal under Spanish law, but because the Spanish government has been backpedaling on various autonomy provisions that were constitutionally voted in and agreed to, they're, they're removing those powers from Catalonia. And because of the popular desire for a referendum, the Catalan government decided to hold one anyway. The Spanish government is protesting that this is illegal and is doing everything that they can to stop it, including sending in the Garda Civil, which is the Spanish National Police, something between the FBI and the National Guard. They're called in a lot of uh, sources military police. I'm not sure how accurate that is because one of the frustrations in covering this, and if you're reading news this morning about Catalonia, be very, very careful. One of the frustrations is that our friends, WikiLeaks and the Russians, are very active in support of Catalonian independence because they support any independence movement in the West. They supported Scottish independence. And a lot of what they peddle is BS. Now, I have seen a lot of claims about skinheads marching and beating folks up that have turned out to be false, spread by RT and others. Um, I've seen a lot of other BS and I remember back during the Scottish independence referendum where it, they, the Russian quote unquote observers said that, uh, at the Edinburgh account votes got discarded and everyone I talked to who was there from the SNP and who was there from, uh, uh American observers said that was false. So be careful about your information sources, but what we are able to confirm right now is that polling places have been occupied by Spanish police and closed down. The uh, reaction to that is that in order to keep the polling places open, families with children have been camping out with sleeping bag in schools. They have started sending the kids home because of accusations that they're being human shields. Uh, we know that the Spanish government does not want violence and that very, very stern instructions have been given to the police not to beat people up or attack anyone. So there's a real hope that this stays peaceful. But we don't know what's going to happen. We also know that, that 14 Catalonian uh, officials have been arrested so far, and that is because they are holding an illegal referendum. And we know that the Spanish government is seizing ballot papers as fast as they can find them while the Catalans are printing them as fast as they can. So the Spanish government is saying that this is not legitimate and have been doing everything they can to delegitimize the referendum while the Catalans are pushing forward in order to hold this referendum anyway. At the same time, as the Garda Civil left you, I've seen videos of people in Spanish towns singing uh, Aporeos Oe, Go Get Them. Uh, the, the Garda Civil rode into Catalonia flying Spanish flags out of their windows. And at the same time, there have been people singing the fascist anthem 
of Franco's Spain and giving Nazi salutes in Madrid in rallies opposing independence. So whatever happened yesterday, we don't know what the future of Catalonia is. The Catalonian government said that they would uh, hold, uh, declare a unilateral declaration of independence within 48 hours of a vote if the vote was successful. And the Spanish government has said that this is illegal, that they won't respect the result, have been doing everything they can to disregard the result. And tensions are riding high in Spain and across Spain as a result. So that's the context for whatever news you may be hearing this morning about Catalonia. And I'll be back next week to talk about the results and what happens in the future. Uh, But even on Sunday or even on Monday, we are not going to know what the future of Catalonia is and what's going to happen. So that's a story I encourage you all to watch closely. And of course, at the same time, the Kurds held their own election and and they were successful in that they uh, voted to, the Kurds of northern Iraq voted to declare independence. And of course, the Iraqi government has said they're not going to honor that and the U.S. is very much opposed. So maybe we can line all that up next week and, and um, that can be a package of... Um, conversation basically next week. Uh, The other thing I think we need to touch on real quickly is Puerto Rico. And uh, I only say real quickly because that is a situation that's changing so fast and we are not a news gathering organization. But I did hear something appalling today, which was that the general who took over the Katrina response after Brownie was ejected basically said that for Katrina, he had 20,000 troops at his disposal, 20,000 people to use and to you know create the kinds of supply chains and that sort of thing needed during recovery. And we have managed to send 4,000 National Guardsmen to Puerto Rico, which is, as this general has confirmed, a much, much larger disaster. So that our president is spending his time in a... Um, tweet fight with, you know, putting down the mayor of San Juan, who has repeatedly risen above his childishness and um, put forth the priority that saving lives should be at the top of everyone's agenda. It is, it's of course, unacceptable that our president is doing what he's doing. But I think when we're talking about nationalist movements and we're talking about the Catalonians and we're talking about the Kurds, that, boy, if I were Puerto Rico and the U.S. had not, you know, is doing what we're doing right now and not ridden to my rescue in this absolutely appalling disaster, a few years down the road when I have time to think about it, man, I I cannot imagine that this isn't going to negatively influence Puerto Rican citizens. And it makes me furious because these people are Americans. As long as they're American yeah. citizens, as long as Puerto Rico is part of the United States, they're Americans. And uh, we have we are letting them die. We haven't sent in the military response we need to bring in generators and food and water. They have they need, according to uh, a representative on, on, on Twitter today, they need 52 ho- uh, helicopters. They have 18. Yeah, my husband said, where are the Chinooks that, you know, they keep talking about they're having trouble getting supplies places. Chinooks don't have those problems. Yeah. You know, as Trump said, you know, it's an island surrounded by water. So helicopters are the perfect solution here. It's an island surrounded by big water as opposed to, you know, little water. The, The situation is absolutely appalling. Trump is allowing Americans to die. And today, as Americans are dying in Puerto Rico, uh, today on Saturday, he's golfing. He's golfing. That's what the president is doing while Americans are dying in Puerto Rico. Next up on Hopping Mad, Will will be talking a little bit about Brexit and some of of the economic aspects of Brexit here on Hopping Mad. Welcome back to Hopping Mad. So I wanted to talk about Brexit in my blog today. One of the 
arguments that you'll see all over the internet anytime Brexit is mentioned is that, well, none of these economists' predictions for Brexit is coming true. And that, that's because Brexit hasn't happened yet. Brexit has not yet taken place. Brexit will happen when the UK and EU agree on the terms of exit for uh, the United Kingdom. So all of the things that have been predicted, such as negative supply shock, the fall of the pound, and various other issues, are things that have not yet taken place because Brexit hasn't taken place. So let's let's point that out at the very beginning of our discussion. Now, one of the things that has been just a, a great bellwether to tell what's going on about Brexit is that anything the British government says turns out to be false. So if Theresa May or a UK government official says something, you are in on pretty firm uh, ground to consider that the opposite is probably true. And that's true of the last couple of days. You know, the UK government had this big announcement saying that, you know, there had been good progress in the most recent Brexit talks, while Juncker and others in the European Parliament have said it's too soon to move to the next phase of Brexit talks and that there has not been sufficient progress on Brexit in order to uh, have any kind of deal in place before October or any kind of progress in negotiations with Juncker saying, I'm saying there will be no sufficient progress from now until October unless miracles would happen. So despite the UK saying everything's fantastic and moving forward, the EU is saying, no, no, it's not. The current current status is that uh, the UK is saying they want a two-year transitional process, and that's being held as realistic. But I guess, I guess what we ought to talk about when we talk about Brexit is what it means for the UK economy. Since really the 1960s, the UK has spent a lot of, of time and effort working on integrating its economy with other economies in the EU. If you look at their major exports and a lot of the stuff that they produce industrially, it's parts for aircraft. They make really, really excellent Rolls-Royce engine parts and other engine parts that end up in Airbus equipment that are sold to France to be put in Eurofighters. They make a ton of avionics equipment. They sell a lot of food to Europe. If you look at a lot of their, their sales, they sell things into that common European market. And they buy things in order to do that manufacturing. They buy other machined parts. They buy raw resources and raw materials. Uh, the British public consumes, I think, more Prosecco than anywhere else on the planet. So they're buying tons of wine from the EU and on all of these levels, from industrial goods to foodstuffs to, to luxury goods to alcohol, they purchase things from the European continent. And that process of, of opening up trade and, and making those, those uh, trade systems work has been the work of the past 80 or 90 years. And Brexit in a two-year transitional process is going to rip that foundation out from underneath the feet of the British people. What this means is that you're going to see what economists refer to as negative supply shock. Now, supply shocks are what happen when suddenly there's a lot of a particular good or service. For example, if if the Chinese start manufacturing a ton of cheap steel and dump it on the international market, that has hurt steel manufacturers in the past. There were fights back uh, during the Clinton administration between the U.S. and Japan over the price of steel. Uh, that's a positive supply shock. Or if there's uncertainty about a good or service or uh, a, a product uh, is cut off, either a, a, let's say, as happens in France recently, there's a bad growing season for grapes and you know, the amount of grapes you have is sharply in decline, you have a negative supply shock. You don't you don't have enough grapes to make wine with, which led to a, a interesting story about there being the theft of wine grapes in France this past week. So what a negative supply shock is, is is a loss of access to good or service. 
And the problem with Brexit is that it's not just one good or service. It's all of them. When the UK leaves the European Union, it's not going to have the trading access that it, it wants. The EU has refused to agree to give them access to the single market if they're going to go forward with Brexit, that Brexit has to mean Brexit, that if they're going to leave, they have to leave that market. And that is going to cut off all of those goods and services, the supplies for them that we mentioned at the beginning of the show, the machine parts and other things that are used in manufacturing food, other goods. And while UK goods aren't going to flow to the EU, that means that you're going to see ramping up of factory production in other places. So one of the things I said in a previous show, as it relates to the auto manufacturing industry in the UK, is, yeah, you guys kicked out all the Polish workers and they're going to go back to Poland and open up GM factories there. There is a, a real, real concern that the British auto manufacturing industry isn't going to be able to be competitive because they sell their products to the European mainland. The UK doesn't manufacture cars for the UK. They manufacture cars for the EU. And if you look at places like Poland, where you have a lot of people who can do that same kind of work, you're going to see the growth of the auto manufacturing industry there. Um, and if you look at, at Germany, I've heard Germany referred to as an auto dealership with a flag because of the way that the uh, German car manufacturers have relationships with the German government. They're going to ramp up their own auto production as well. And it's not in the interests of any EU state to make any friendly deals with the UK government because it means that their own auto industry is going to grow and expand. It's going to hurt some dealerships, but it's not going to hurt auto manufacturers or the, the automobile market in Europe. So what you're going to see when the terms of Brexit are known, when this years-long process of working out the deal is finally completed, is a negative supply shock. You're going to see a lack of access to goods and services in the UK. I hope it doesn't go quite as far as it, it went in the 1960s when you had a return to rationing. Uh, in the 1960s, the British people were still seeing rationing that had lasted since the Second World War. And I don't think that's going to happen again. And I hope it's not going to happen again. But you're going to see a sharp increase in prices because of the law of supply and demand. You don't have enough supply. Price goes up. And again, the reason this hasn't happened already is because Brexit hasn't happened yet. But we're seeing the early stages as people prepare to leave the UK because they know what's going to happen. We have seen the first fall in housing prices in London in eight years because bankers are being told, learn German, we're moving to Frankfurt because businesses that were normally expanding are, are closing down. And so that is essentially what's going to happen with Brexit is, is we're going to see those negative supply shocks. Arliss? I think, you know, you think about 1972, the huge gas lines in the United States. And so people who are alive then are pretty clear on what negative supply shock looks like. But I think that um, the British have forgotten and the EU has been trying hard to remind them. The EU economy, they are an island. They cannot support themselves and they cannot, they used to be able to support themselves because the sun never set on the British Empire, right? They were bringing in resources from all around the world that were quote unquote theirs because they had, they quote unquote owned India, Australia, places like that. But that is no longer the case. It is, you know, the age of empire is over and that little island is going to have to figure out how to support itself. That's going to be a trick. And um, they will continue to import, but those imports will cost a lot more. And how they manage wages and the, the cost of goods, you know, the cost of goods sold inside the UK itself. I can't imagine that inflation isn't going to become an issue. It's got to. It's simply got to. Yeah. Yeah. The, the, the value of the pound will have to fall just to deal with the economy. I mean, that's that's definitely going to happen. Yeah. And one of the other sad predictions that we made on this show is is destabilization in Northern Ireland. Uh, 
There was a story this week, and this will be my my last little bit on this. Families are being forced out of their homes in in a community in Northern Ireland by Protestant militia organizations. Threats are being made against Catholics and UVF banners. That's the Ulster Volunteer Force, um, which is the Protestant counterpart to the IRA. Those banners have gone up. And the police had to tell Catholic residents in what was supposed to be a non-sectarian community where both Catholics and Protestants lived. Uh, The the police force told the Catholics that they had to leave for their own safety. That happened this last week in Northern Ireland. And the official sort of spokespeople for the UVF say it wasn't them making the threats. And I actually believe them because of the way that the various groups in Northern Ireland have been committed to the peace process. I said previously on this show that the worry wasn't the major actors, but the dissidents, the people who don't involve themselves, but are more lone wolf organizations. And you're seeing the start of that now in Northern Ireland. And I really hope that the Northern Irish police force and the and the other people in governmental positions there are are able to handle this, because if it's not handled and handled soon, it can get a lot worse. So that's it for me. Coming up, we're going to be talking about universal health care and our support of it here on Hopping Mad. on Hopping Mad, and I want to clarify my position on the current healthcare debate, and because of the position this podcast took during the primary, I thought it was really important to go back and talk about healthcare for a minute first, and at the very top, I want to say that I really support Medicare for All, not because I think the new bill, Bernie's bill, will move. It won't. It won't move. But because I think this conversation that we're now having is essential, and because Bernie has really done the heavy lifting to finally truly move the Overton window on the subject of universal care coverage. So for those of you who don't know, the Overton window is this um, way of thinking about public discourse. And it's the idea that political viability depends on whether or not something falls within the window rather than on the politician's individual preferences. So if you hold your hands out to, you know, beyond your shoulders to either side, and you work your way into the center, the positions start at unacceptable on both ends, then it moves to radical, acceptable, sensible, popular, and then policy, what actually comes out as policy in the center. That's the Overton window. Once things get past radical, once they get into that acceptable, sensible, popular range, that's the Overton window. And Medicare for All has moved from radical to acceptable. It has moved into the Overton window, which is kind of a remarkable thing. And you really do, we really do have to give Bernie props for um, keeping that front and center. But there are absolutely reasons for those of you who think that I'm being negative. Paul Ryan is still the speaker. Mitch McConnell is still the majority leader. Donald Trump is still the president. And even if we get rid of him, Pence is no better. And in fact, he's worse on this subject. So, you know, let's, uh, we need to be realistic about this. And all of the above, all three of those people, McConnell, Ryan, Trump, are all looking at supporting huge cuts to Medicare and the current budget proposal. So... When I, you know, when I say Medicare for all won't move, it's not because I don't want it to move. I would love it to move. It's not going to move because of political reality. There all, but the other big thing I think is that there isn't yet strong democratic consensus, primarily because 
Democratic leadership are still worried about 2018 and about Trump imploding the ACA from the inside out and literally killing Americans. He's, they're more worried about Americans dying in 2018, and that's where their focus is, and that, frankly, is where it should be. But the other part of this is that, frankly, Medicare for all isn't actually the answer. Just ask anyone on Medicare, because Medicare is insufficient, and anyone who can afford afford to who's on Medicare carries an additional policy. But also you have to remember that physicians can't afford for Medicare for all to be the, you know, the name of the game. Hospitals can't afford it either. But there's tremendous value in coalescing behind a single phrase. And Medicare for all is by far when you're, you know, when you're thinking about how you sell something to the public and that it's important to get elected before we get the opportunity to legislate. Medicare for all is a better option than something like universal single payer. You know, imagine universal single payer on a bumper sticker, right? So Medicare for all is something that we can easily say. We can put it on a bumper sticker. We can tweet about it. That makes it an easy thing to wrap your head around. And that's a good way to conceptualize the kind of healthcare we're looking for for the American public. I would argue that the the problem with using Medicare for all is, as you just outlined, it's not sufficient. And so if we use the brand, uh, I'll just say, of Medicare as our starting point, you're basically going to have a bunch of Republicans lining up and say, yeah, but Medicare is terrible. You don't want to have your health care taken away and be forced to be on Medicare. It doesn't pay for all these things. And then Democrats are going to be in this position where we're going to have to say, yeah, but that's because Republicans suck and have been trying to cut it for years. It would be, it would be much better, I would argue, if we just said health care. For all universal health care and have that be the, the words that we use, because that doesn't tie us to the Medicare system. And even if we're expanding the Medicare system and growing it into something that is sufficient, um, I would argue that 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 it's using the phrase Medicare for all opens us up to some attack lines that uh, that that are, are going to hurt us politically. I would just say we should say universal health care, but that's just my two cents on it. I don't disagree with that, actually, in terms of um, theoretically. I just know that the momentum that Medicare for All has gathered is pretty impressive and important. And I also like the idea that all doesn't break out like income levels or age or the line right. between citizens and everybody else who lives in the country. You know, it is, it's saying all of us. And um the the most important thing about this bill is that it takes the i don't see it takes the the conversation to a whole new level i guess is what i'm trying to say it gets it out of the i'm with her i'm with him context which i think is really important and it gets us to talking about our values in terms of healthcare just like you just did right and it because you're talking about Medicare isn't high enough quality. Well, that's right. So it gets us talking about, and amongst ourselves, talking mm -hmm. about our values, what we want to see in healthcare. And the perfect time to do it is when we're not also trying to govern, right? Yeah. So that's, you know, I think that's essential. And the other thing is that it puts the cart firmly behind the horse because by the time we have the ability to legislate on this, we will have had the opportunity to achieve a consensus, build a coalition, you know, build a, an unstoppable grassroots momentum, because that's what it's going to take to make this thing happen. And then you can really change the way healthcare is delivered in this country. But until you get that kind of momentum, I mean, we, Obama was able to do it by just sheer force of will, I don't think that happens again in that way. Yeah, I don't think we're going to get to uh, that kind of position. And we shouldn't bank on that. Um, and that's one of the reasons that, you know, uh, the approach has been to fix the ACA and repair the ACA and, and expand the ACA uh, for a lot of policy wonks on this topic, because that's a lot easier than completely upending the uh, healthcare system uh, to begin with. And that, that was one of the reasons I supported Hillary in 2008, by the way, because she supported national single payer in 2008, right. which from a sheer force of will perspective, I do think we could have gotten single payer through. 
I think that's something we could have got, we could have done because we weren't going to get Republican votes anyway. And the last little thing I will say is that when you hear people attack single payer, I want to defend it for just a second. They say, well, you can't make it work in states. And what we know from, you know, MMT principles is is single payer or anything we wanted to pay for can work on the federal level. It's probably not workable on the state level because of budgetary concerns and because of budgetary issues. But on the federal level, we all know that nothing can stop the government from writing checks and sending them out. So it is, in fact, doable on the federal level. And the fact that states can't make it work is not necessarily a strike against it. I just wanted to make that point. Yeah, absolutely. Next up, we have a really great interview with Pavlina Cherneva that I got while at the MMT conference here on Hopping Map. Chernova, whom you've heard me quote many times on Hopping Mad, is an associate professor and chair at the Department of Economics at Bard College. She's also a research associate at the Levy Economics Institute and a senior research scholar at the Center for Full Employment and Price Stability. She's one of the leading lights in modern monetary theory and at the recent MMT conference was ridiculous ridiculously busy. I was lucky to get time with her for this interview. So before I go farther, I want to send out my gratitude for her generosity. I do apologize for the sound quality of the interview. I'm still learning how to record while I'm on the road. And if you hang in and ignore the audio issues, I think you'll find this interview to be well worth your time. Pavlina is a star for a reason. Pavlina Chernova, welcome to Hopping Mad. Once upon a time, you made a graph, and it became very famous. We talked about it on this show. I'll show. I'll put a copy of it up on our website for listeners if you haven't seen it. But encapsulating in a stunningly simple and intuitively, intuitively obvious way why inequality is such a big deal was incredibly important. Can you talk about that a little and why it made such a big splash? Certainly. Good to talk to you. Thank you. Um, that was a, a graph that used the research of um, Thomas Piketty, who basically created this fantastic database that looked at how people's incomes changed over time, their real incomes, meaning their real purchasing power. And so I looked at the data and I was you know, wondering, well, what is happening to people's incomes when the economy is recovering? You know, everybody says a rising tide lifts all boats, etc. So how about we see whether growth is enough? And I started breaking up the data according to expansion in the U.S. And then I noticed this really stunning pattern that was very consistent, that right after the, in the beginning of the post-war era, 90% of people used to get about 90% of the income growth. And then little by little that changed. You know, economies entered recession. The next expansion gave them 70%. The following expansion gave them only 60% of the economic pie, basically, the growth of the economic pie. And then, surprise, surprise, in the 80s, economies are growing, but people's incomes are barely budging. And you could say in the last 25 years, the vast majority of families, the bottom 90% of households, have seen zero growth in their real income. So imagine... Two and a half decades without your real purchasing power moving. Like you don't feel like the economy is working for you. You don't feel your standard of living is increasing. And in the last expansion, in the Obama expansion, the economy was quote unquote recovering, but people's incomes were falling. And so that, I think this is basically what shook so many people um, to see, you know, and Bernie encapsulated it very, very succinctly. You know, he said, look, who shares in this growth, you know, uh, who gets the gains of that growth. And all of the gains were going to a very, very small sliver of the population. So, you know, sometimes the simplest picture <laughs> speaks, <laughs> speaks volumes. Exactly. Um, so you went from being a well-respected, shall we say, lefty economist to being basically a famous economist. How did it feel to all of a sudden be all over media, that kind of thing, talking about you know, a chart that you just came up with one day as, a, you know, a matter of research? I, I would say, I don't know about famous economists, but I would say for me, the, the most um, 
important lesson from this whole experience is the confirmation that you just never know how change happens. You know, you work and you work because I had put together this chart way before it caught on fire. And, you know, I had, you know, published it at least two years prior. And then somebody had picked it up. I think it was somebody from the Pew Research Institute had picked it up and tweeted it. And, and so then it, that's how it entered sort of the, you know, the, the media circle. And, you know, it was published in a journal article and just tells you that you, you just don't know how communi- how these ideas get communicated. And I was incredibly encouraged that, uh, you know, all of a sudden, you know, people were paying attention. Um, so you just do what you have to do and let it, you know, <laughs> it, it will happen. You know, it will get disseminated if it will, um, sometimes by accident. So do you think that that experience, that chart itself moved the needle ever so slightly for MMT as a, as a corner of economics? I mean, we're still this little tiny squeaky wheel in the far, far distant reaches of economics. But do you think it moved the needle at all? Well, it added a, a different research direction for MMT. MMT basically provide some foundational concepts about how we can fund an agenda. It could be progressive, it could be regressive. So, uh, and, and clearly we prefer progressive agenda, but MMT provides us a way of thinking of how do we go about getting those important policies. What I thought this charge did is that it actually did move the conversation, um, the national conversation in some small part. Uh, Bernie Sanders took it on the Senate floor and, you know, blew it up and then talked about it. And then he took it on the campaign and started saying, you know, you know, 10% of households are taking all of the growth. Eventually you heard even people like Hillary Clinton talking a little bit in those terms. And this is, you know, mind you, you know, 10 years ago, it was anathema to talk about inequality. Certainly in academic circles, you know, we would use poverty, like we won't use inequality. So I think the chart helped shape a little bit the national conversation and just uses a very specific language about who's benefiting from this economy. Is it working for all? Yeah. So... You became and are known to be very focused on job guarantee, and you speak often on job guarantee. Did that happen by accident, or was that by design? In other words, did you kind of get a little bit interested in it, so you wrote on it, and then you wrote on it some more? Or did you start out saying, wow, that this is a really amazing thing. This is where I want to focus my career. A little bit of both. I started my work on MMT um, when I was a student in college, and I did a little bit of research for Warren Mosler. And at the time, I was looking at his work, and, uh, and I said, you know, Warren, you could build a very simple model to explain what you're saying. You know, he was saying at the time, you know, that, that the government who... The go- a government that is a monopoly issuer of currency has lots of privileges and lots of responsibilities. You know, it's one thing to say that you can fund a lot of programs, but then the question is, like, how do you fund them? What uh, What is the impact of funding these programs? And one concern for us from the beginning was whether it will have an inflationary effect. You know, when you say government has unlimited financial capacity, you can fund whatever you want. People immediately ask the question, wait, you know, how do you ensure you don't have runaway inflation? So that was that was my actually very first question I wanted to explore. I said, Warren, we could just, you know, put together very basic equations and show how a government can fix one price in the economy, and that can be become an anchor for lots of prices. And at the time, we used to call the program the employer of last resort, not the job guarantee. So my first introduction to the job guarantee was in this mathematical macro framework for price stabilization. Um, But then the more I wrote on the job guarantee, and specifically uh, later on, studying an application of our proposal in Argentina showed me the human face of this program. And at, at that point, I mean, I, I've always been interested in, in issues that, that, that or policies that benefit the general public, universal policies. But this experience, you know, showed me how incredibly impactful the job guarantee can be um, on, on people. And so I built a research agenda where I wasn't just focused on these esoteric questions to some people, oh, you know, macro stability, inflation. I started focusing uh, a lot more on specific design. Um, and my current research is 
on how unemployment really really has to be studied like a disease and like an epidemic. And then when you think about how you put these programs in place, this is very useful kind of lens through which you can study. But to me, or from my perspective, JG isn't just about unemployment because a well-implemented JG program gives an environment or an environment, but also an economy, the opportunity to flex and change without causing, you know, tremendous losses and tremendous disruption. So can you speak about it a little bit in terms of how it allows an economy to address things like new tech, environmental and health challenges, and social conditions? All right. So the first thing is the job guarantee is an employment program. And um, when you think about the macro economy, it moves, you know, through ebbs and flows. There is, yes, there is innovation, there's tech change, but there are also just the normal drumbeat of the economy. You know, economies go up and down. So we have the so-called business cycle. And so it is a an absolute feature of our economy that unemployment is is the is the force that stabilizes our economy so we have you know massive layoffs and then we try to increase employment and shrink the unemployment rate so the way the economy works today is that the unemployed are the ones that are sort of the buffer from technological change, from, you know, business moods, profit expectations. Like people are basically the ones who are feeling these effects from those changes. And so with the job guarantee, we say, look, we are already, the government is responsible to pay for unemployment. Now, I don't just mean in, in terms of paying unemployment insurance, but we have to address all of the other concerns, all the other social fallout associated with unemployment, whether it is health effects on families, whether it is we want to train them and educate people to get back into jobs, whether it is crime, whether it is whatever social issues you have usually is related in one aspect or another to unemployment. So the way I talk about it is that we are paying for it already. The economy always will move. Unemployed, the unemployed people are going to be the ones who are going to absorb these changes, and we're going to be paying for these changes. Now, how about we put in place a positive policy where we simply unemploy the people who have been rendered obsolete by technology or whatever other um, other changes? And at the same time, we have pressing, enormous concerns, like environmental concerns. So instead of paying for bad outcomes, let's pay for good outcomes. Let's employ the unemployed to help restore the environment or infrastructure or whatever else. So we have two choices. You either pay for unemployment or you pay for employment. And this is a far superior program. So as a small business owner, I, I don't understand how other businesses don't understand that having more people working at a living wage is good for business. I just don't get how they don't get it. But is there trustworthy data? Is there great data available on that? In other words, what's the best way to tell that story? Because I think that that ties to job guarantee. If we're going to have a, a JG program with a $15 minimum wage, which sounds, or a $15 base wage, which sounds great to me, then that means small business has to compete at that level as well. I think that's where we have to be anyway. So good. It moves the whole economy there. That's a positive direction. But it's going to terrify business until business has some window into how it works for them. How do we write that story for them? How do we tell that story? Well, the first thing is that we have this paradox. And, you know, maybe you feel it as a small business owner. You sometimes work for people, look for look for people, look for, you know, um, people to hire, but you're having difficulty hiring the people with the right skill. At the same time, the paradox is at the same time, we have so many people who are unemployed. So it is, it, it, it is, I don't think that, you know, we should, uh, ignore the complaint of business when they say, well, we have trouble finding people to staff our positions. You know, and economists say, no, 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 there's lots of unemployment out there. Well, that's the problem is that, you know, unemployment has become such a, a pervasive problem that p people are losing their skill. They're losing, um, their experience with the job market. And so I totally can see it from your point of view, how you might have difficulty hiring somebody who could fit your needs. Now, the job guarantee simply reverses this. It says, look, we will employ, we will, we will, it's not, the, it's not your business to employ everybody who has 
who who doesn't have a job. Right? It's not the job of the private sector to solve the unemployment problem. That that is a public function, you know, as a last resort. It's and so my responsibility as a government would be to simply employ the unemployed and say, "Hey, I'm just going to provide these services. I am going to provide training. I'm going to provide on the job experience. I'll try to create some public good and at the same time I will give you an opportunity to hire from this pool of employed people who are uh, working enhancing human capital etc. Um so that's number 1. I'd much if I you know if I were had to hire I would much rather just see what somebody has been doing and look at you know look at their resume and hire somebody who's working than somebody who's not has not been working for a long time. That's number 1. But number 2 is the wage, uh the issue of the wage. There is actually a lot of research that says that uh, precarious and poorly paid employment makes for very poor employees. Very very poor, very unhappy, unproductive, you know, they're really having trouble, you know, managing family responsibilities, um managing their health, uh and so they they can work um and they won't be happy working. And so uh providing a floor for everybody sort of raising the floor for the economy as a whole uh will not be a cost to business because we raise the floor for everybody and so we are raising the income so you should absolutely expect your profits to increase if we raise the floor and the purchasing power from the bottom up and so there are um at just at the big picture macro level there are uh, positives uh there but again i want to just stress we just have two choices the choice is either to tolerate a lot of people without work or have a program design a program that will employ them the other thing i think this conference has covered so many amazing topics and things i hadn't thought about and mmt as it relates to the environment to civil rights to human rights i mean really really done a great job in a number of areas lawyers speaking on mmt which was really useful to me but one thing i didn't hear anything about was how mmt speaks to more vulnerable communities not just necessarily racially vulnerable or economically vulnerable but in particular women and youth and um i would like to have heard that hopefully next year so you i know are working in that area so can you tell us a little, a little bit about what you're doing All right. So right now I'm working on how can we implement a job guarantee in the United States. A lot of times people ask me, okay, what what happens? You know, if I'm unemployed and you put in place this job guarantee program, like how can I benefit from from this program? Like where will I go? What kind of job will I do? And so now I'm working on a uh, on a paper that outlines um the administration the management the kinds of jobs that we will provide and as part of that i am essentially proposing a national care act but understanding care in broad terms so we we have jobs created um that will care for the environment that will care for people that will care for communities and in the subset you know apart from the green jobs that uh you have heard about here at this conference when we talk about care for people we have to be very mindful about certain vulnerable uh communities at risk youth caregivers mothers um the elderly veterans and so i mean really the job guarantee is first and foremost a, a program for people right and then we use their potential to address other social concerns like environmental care but we have to do it in a way that we we understand where they're at what are their needs so you know the way i think about it is you know you are a veteran that comes comes home and has trouble finding employment and now you fall into all of these problems like homelessness etc and so instead of being a patient of government welfare policy you become agent we provide you the job and suddenly you're the person that does veteran outreach because you know what it is like you've been there you know what you need and you're helping your fellow men and women uh, sort of deal with those issues so a job guarantee will provide work for veterans to address the precise concerns they have a job guarantee will provide care work we will give you the training like you are a caregiver at home and you know uh, dealing with with parents or with children or other um uh, sick relatives and we can provide an opportunity where you might actually want to shadow a nurse or maybe you are an unemployed nurse and we can provide you um uh, that job opportunity but if you're not and you want to come into job guarantee the job guarantee we will support you so that you can fulfill your duties and it's not a burden on you and 
at the same time give you some skill about uh, medicine administration, you know, sanitation and other other things that you uh, you might need. But basically, our job is to relieve the pressures on on the people uh, while providing them an opportunity to work at decent pay and a, a decent work. Also, you know, providing flexible arrangements for caregivers. You know, maybe there are there are moms that. Um, do you know wish to work they want to be attached to the labor market a little bit but they have caregiving responsibilities i'll create a part-time uh work option and i will make it so that it fits their schedule not my schedule so that they can actually do the work and maybe it is in areas where they might want to um transition into you know after kids go go to college etc because we find that there are a lot of women who want to work they do, but they have their care responsibilities, and so it appears as though they don't want to be there. But once the kids have <laughs> flown from the nest, they say, oh, what do I do now? I've had 18 years that I haven't been in the labor market, and nobody would want to hire me. We will provide that stepping stone. And so I really like. am trying to think a lot about... Um, you know, at-risk youth. I mean, we've had so many programs, even in the United States, um, targeting direct youth employment programs that have been very successful. And so I don't think we need to reinvent the wheel. We just have to mobilize the resources and say, there are lots of things that work. And we just have to provide the funding and just uh, provide the jobs. There's really, really good research that says that if you ask people who are unemployed What's the most important thing to them about having a job? Making money is number five on that list, which blew my mind. You know, as somebody who, frankly, has always had a job, it never occurred to me that this would be the case. But frankly, it was overwhelmingly the case. And to me, that's one of the huge deals about the job guarantee, which is that it addresses these other four needs, which are things like to be an example to my children, to have self-esteem. Those things come before making money, which is amazing. And so can you speak to that just a little bit? Yeah, I think in that survey, uh, or at least there is one such survey that uh, the very first response is I could do something. Just the ability to be able to participate is the the number one reason why you want that job. So you're not at home, you're not isolated, you're not by yourself. Now, there's fantastic research on this stuff. You know, it's called, um, there's one paper that is uh, called bowling alone or bowling at all. In other words, when you're unemployed, you know, it says that you are, are, are so much by yourself and you've kind of lost your social capital that you no longer like go with your friends to kind of bowl. You know, you just go and you're on your own, essentially. You're trying to make it on your own. While when you work, you have your colleagues, you have, you know, your network, you can get an other opportunity, you know, a stepping stone, you have the cool, cooler effect where you can talk and chit chat with your friends. But you, you have this fundamental sense of isolation once you're unemployed. And so you go and bowl alone. But actually, it's even worse that, it, that, that this kind of sense of isolation is so um, devastating that the people completely lose their social connections and they don't even go bowling as, a, as the metaphor goes. Now, why I'm saying this, that, that this kind of isolation effect has enormous human costs. There's good research that shows that um, there is a significant impact on mortality. So unemployment very literally kills people. They're more, you know, they, they have uh, an increase in mortality. Um, suicide rates are associated, one in five are associated with unemployment. There are health effects not just on the unemployed. We talked about this on the show in relationship to Greece. Oh, yes, absolutely. That's right. There's very good data there. But also in this, I have a paper at the Levy Institute called uh, Unemployment, the Silent Epidemic, and I found the research that was specifically pertaining to the United States and how even in the, in the recession, the states that had the highest unemployment rates had the highest suicide rates. And so you might think, well, actually, suicide is not that big of a number anyway. I think that is, you know, that's an epidemic that has to be addressed. But there is, you know, mortality uh, effects are felt 20 years later. So you have, you experience unemployment. This is not a short-term affair for you. It, it, it impacts your life and your health in such fundamental ways that you feel them 20 years down the road. And the same thing happens for 
not in terms of mortality, but in terms of health effects uh, for your children and spouses. So kids' outcomes, I mean, this is kind of the research of the obvious, right? Kids, are, you know, are malnourished. They don't perform well in school. Their own um, experience in the job market is worse off if they're unemployed parents at home, right? Their, their own wages, the children's wages are lower and labor force. So it's there's so much research that's out there from public health, and it's fantastic. Macroeconomists don't think about it. They don't. They have not put it together. They do not think of the unemployment problem this way. They say, well, you know, it's some friction in the market, and the market is going to sort it out. No, this is a human disaster, and that's how we need to be addressing it. We think about it as pixels and not people. So thank you so much for joining us today on Hopping Mad, Pavlina. You've been fabulous, and I know it was really hard to fit us into your schedule, so we really appreciate it. You take care. My absolute pleasure. Happy to talk to you again.